When he was at Facebook, Venkat Venkataramani saw how large volumes of data were changing software infrastructure. Applications such as logging servers and advertising technology were creating fast-moving, semi-structured data. The user base of Facebook was growing, the traffic was growing, and the volume of data was growing. And the popular methods for managing this data were insufficient for the applications that developers wanted to build on top. In previous episodes about data platforms, we have covered similar difficulties as experienced by Uber and DoorDash. Incoming data is often in JSON, which is hard to query for large data science jobs. So the JSON data is transformed to a file format like Parquet, and this requires an ETL job. Once it is in a Parquet file on disk in a data lake, the access time is slow. To query the data efficiently, the data must be loaded into a data warehouse, which can load the data into memory, often in a columnar format that is easy to aggregate. Imagine being a developer at Facebook or Uber or DoorDash and trying to build a simple dashboard or a machine learning application on top of this data platform. Where do you find the right data? How do you know it's up to date? And what if you don't know the shape of your queries ahead of time and you haven't defined indexes over your data? The access speed will be too slow to do exploratory analysis. There are many steps in this process, and each of these steps creates friction for applications developers that want to build on top of big data. It also creates opportunities to lose data or have time discrepancies between those pieces of data. Since even Facebook was having trouble managing this problem of the data platform, Venkat figured that there was an opportunity to build a company around solving the data platform for other software companies. Venkat is the CEO of Rockset, a data system that is built to make it easy for developers to build data-driven apps. In Rockset, a piece of data can be ingested from data streams, data lakes, and databases. Rockset creates multiple indexes and schemas across the data. Because there are multiple models for querying, Rockset can analyze an incoming query and create an intelligent query plan for serving that query. Vinkot joins the show to discuss his time working on data at Facebook, the untapped opportunities of using that data, the architecture of his company Rockset, and also the changing economics of cloud resources, how it makes it possible to build a application like Rockset where it might not have been possible before cloud services made storage and compute so much cheaper. We are conducting a listener survey. We would love to know what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey and check it out. It would be super helpful. And it would also enter you into a chance to win a piece of swag if you if you enter your email address. Otherwise, it's anonymous. And you can win t-shirts, a hoodie, mugs, things that are available at the Software Engineering Daily store. You can also sign up for our newsletter at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter. And with that, let's get on with this episode. (music) 
Venkat Venkataramani. You are the CEO and co-founder of Rockset. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You were at Facebook for eight years. You started in 2007, and I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about scaling Facebook because you were first on the team that built the backend for Facebook chat, and then eventually you got into caching infrastructure, data infrastructure, a lot of different things. But let's start with that first chat product that you worked on. So Facebook chat was a unique product in relation to something that people would build today. Like if you build a chat product today, you wouldn't have scale from day one. But Facebook was already a popular product. So when you were building Facebook chat, you knew that this had to be scalable from day one. How did that affect the architecture way back in 2007? Well, it was a like brings back a lot of old memories. Yeah, thanks for the you know trip, nostalgic trip. It was a very challenging project, mostly because it was a completely web-based chat, right? Back in the day, Ajax was just a thing, and we were doing these long polls, and, and, and that kind of uh, pattern was not well understood. There were lots and lots of issues, both from on the sort of the client-side JavaScript and on the back-end scaling. And I would say, yeah, scaling was a, we spent a lot of time making sure that, you know, the product would work upon launch. And so we came up with this idea to sort of do a dark launch, which is really how we did scale testing because there's no amount of workload that we could create in our own sandboxes that could mimic, at that point, 40, 50 million monthly active users all actively you know, using the chat product. And so the way we actually did scale testing back then was to launch the product on all the client side without actually any UI and sending kind of like you know randomly pick a friend and send a fake kind of a chat message or pretend that somebody is actually typing and sending a chat message and then tracking how many of them are successful and whatnot. Scaling that kind of like we call that dark launch and doing a dark launch was extremely important because I think we thought we were done, we thought it would work and then we did a dark launch and we realized nothing really worked. And we spent about two months from the day we thought we were ready to the day we were actually ready. So you had you basically had the the client you deployed the client but it just wasn't rendering anything on the UI yes and then randomly you would have a message that would be sent technically from my account to maybe your account or it would send a bunch of messages and we would have a conversation but, but you're just mimicking a conversation sending like crack or hello Correct. I'm I'm yes. Jeff or hello I'm Vinka yes and yes. and and you just did that at enough scale to find out if it would work without actually revealing to users that that was happening. That's pretty interesting. What kinds of issues did that reveal? Oh my God. I mean, every part of the stack, nothing really worked. We thought everything would work and nothing really worked when we first did the dark launch. I mean, at every part of the stack, there were some scalability issues. The number of concurrent connections that we thought we were ready for, the memory overhead per connection, suddenly, you know, crashing a bunch of backend servers. We back in, you know, we were mostly on Apache Zend uh, PHP stack back then. The Facebook kind of like the PHP, you know, application servers were running, and the per message overhead processing overhead was way too much. That we realized if enough people started chatting, maybe even like a small percentage of the people started actively chatting, the number of endpoint hits just from the chat product to the web backend was higher than all of Facebook put together. And so we had to basically go and optimize that so that. Because every page load is an explicit step from the user, except that a chat message cannot be as expensive as a, as a use, you know, front end page load. And so we ended up 
just figuring out tons and tons of things like that. And then, you know, we'll f- find one bottleneck and then we fix it and then we find the next bottleneck. And it's kind of like telling to say, you know, we, we were in that mode for about maybe two and a half months or something like that. And then we cranked up the, all these thresholds. Like we had these fake thresholds on how many users should we should be pretend, pretend chatting right now and how often should, be, should they be sending messages and things like that. And we had cranked it up by the end of the second month high enough and things were working very well to the point where the day we actually launched to all the, all the users, we were so confident it's going to work because we had tested it at even much harder, higher scale than you know, what actually happened on, on the launch day. So after building chat, you worked on scaling memcached infrastructure and other aspects of caching. Explain the role that caching played in Facebook's early days. Why is caching infrastructure so important to Facebook? So memcached was just amazing back in the day. I, I feel like, you know, I often tell the story where there's a lot of services that Facebook built. There was only one thing that actually truly scaled to Facebook scale, and that was memcached. Everything else was using memcached as the, you know, scaling kind of like layer, right? So say you build a microservice for newsfeed or you build a microservice for ad serving and you would just be suddenly having to scale to, you know, millions of operations per second. But a lot of the time you're repeating the same operations over and over and the actual backend that is doing that operation can't really do that at that, that scale. And so you use memcached as a look-aside cache. And so it was very, very important that we had a very high-performing, highly available, highly reliable memcached, not just for you know, one part of the product, but for all of Facebook. You know, back in the day when memcached used to go down for you know, even, I don't know, like let's say tens of minutes, most of Facebook for a lot of people would be a blank page. We, we can't render anything because the other backends that memcached was kind of like fronting can't really take the kind of throughput and the load that memcached would have no problem dealing with because it's not really trying to do too much work, too much computation to process a request, but everything that it was fronting, you know, all the backend services that memcached was fronting per request has to do a lot of work. And you, we wouldn't have been able to scale any of those backends, you know, during the hyper, you know, growth years of Facebook in the 2007, 2008, 2009, and even much later than that without the power of memcached. When I think back to that time, Facebook, I think, was the earliest highly interactive multimedia product that was so widely used. I'm trying to think of other other products in that category, but I guess there was there was kind of Gmail, maybe Google Search, maybe some online games, but you probably didn't really have patterns to follow, right? There weren't really any companies that had done stuff like this except maybe Google. No, that's a very good point. I used to say this in all my tech talks back back when I was managing online data infrastructure at Facebook, where the social networking kind of backend workload was just very, very different, mostly because of the huge fan ins and the fan outs. And what I mean by that is, you know, you you have to build a, let's say, a search backend, and there's a lot of, it's a, it's a read-only index, right? There's a lot of hard challenges in order to build a, a web scale search engine, like what Google did, both in terms of ranking problems and in terms of, you know, just scaling the, the, the online serving index itself to be so fast. But at the end of the day, you, you still have to figure out how to index the web and keep it replicated in many different places so that the, you know, the query, the, the search latency is low. But there were other search engines. There were other you know, things you know, from it where there, there could have been lessons learned that, that is useful. And then the emails, you know, like the Hotmail and the, and the Gmail, and those were the kind of like big products that 
were really popular. And the biggest difference there is that they are all very partitioned, right? You log in and you look at your email, you know, a good email backend would just simply start prefetching your inbox when you're starting to type your password. And then it can give you a very, very good snappy experience because it's very predictable what a person is going to come and look at, which is all the unread email in their inbox. But in a, in a social network, I think the problem is there's a, you know, all the data sets are extremely interconnected, right? And so when enough people log in, they're pretty practically looking at everything that was created in the last, you know, few days or, or, or few, you know, few weeks or, or what have you. And so the problem really came to how do you basically cache and serve a very popular data-hungry product that is highly interconnected where a lot of the, the, the traditional approaches won't work? And the kind of problems where the huge fan, uh, you know, fan ins that would happen on the server side, where let's say I still remember the Stephen Colbert in 2000, 2008 uh, starting a Facebook group to say I'm running for president, and that database that we used to basically host that particular content would just keel over because the entire there's like a big percentage of like logged in population wants to interact with that one piece of content. And a single server just would not be able to deal with that at all, even if that is the only piece of content that that server is serving. And so those are the kind of scalability challenges, the kind of extreme hotspots that happen on the server side and the huge fan ins that would happen on the on the client side, because you're not just going and logging into one server. You're looking at you're asking for some small piece of content from lots and lots of different machines. And very quickly, you know, when all of them come back, you're trying to render the kind of Facebook news feed like data rich experience and all of that required tremendous you know scaling and tremendous kind of you know systems infrastructure and there weren't too many places we could look up to and say hey we should build it like that i think a lot of the ideas had to be you know like infrastructure had to be kind of like built by facebook for facebook during those years yeah and this was pre cloud computing or just around the start of cloud computing you didn't have access to really good cdn infrastructure, I don't think, or CDN infrastructure that would serve Facebook's purposes. So anyway, you you were an engineering director at Facebook eventually after, you know, nearing, you know, around the, the end of your eight years at Facebook, you were building data systems for profiles and friends and messages and photos. And you took those lessons from the early days of building caching infrastructure and, you know, this chat system you turn this into eight years of working on data infrastructure. When you zoom out and you think about the perspective of the eight years you had at Facebook of building all that data infrastructure and solving all these problems and seeing, in some sense, the future, because a lot of the problems that Facebook had in its first eight years or in you know in the time in the eight years that you were there are things that people are having to deal with on a, a regular basis these days. So what are the big lessons? What are the most important takeaways from the engineering time you spend at Facebook? What are the takeaways? If I have to zoom out and look at some perspective, I think I was blessed to work with some amazing people in those teams and and, and, in the infrastructure and product and engineering that I would say Facebook was not the first social network in the world, but it was definitely the first one that scaled to a billion active users. And there was a lot of team, uh, did a lot of hard work for that to uh, you know be true. And the online data infrastructure team, that one thing that I, you know, I'm very proud of, that is a big takeaway is that reliability matters and performance matters. That I think I'm very proud that you know Facebook was largely up through the entire those eight year you know time period, and all the efforts of you know my team were necessary for it. And definitely not sufficient by any means, but definitely necessary. 
The other thing that I would say, the philosophy of, of what we were doing at my previous team at Facebook was to make it very easy to build products and services at Facebook, right? There's lots of data coming in. And we really wanted, you know, product engineering to be bottlenecked by their creativity, right? What is the most engaging application could we build and not really be curtailed by what can the online data infrastructure, you know, do for them? What can it handle and whatnot? You know, that was kind of an ideal goal. We were never really there, to be really honest, but we got quite close. There were entire products, you know, that would get launched and built on top of the online data infrastructure that we would build that we wouldn't even hear about until they launched. We would read about it in the news just as like everybody else that, hey, the pro- Facebook launched another product, but no surprise that there, it was entirely built on top of the, the server side and the, and the online data abstractions that, that we had built and managed and scaled. And so those were the key takeaways. I think the right abstractions matter, being a, making it very easy to build data-driven products can have a sort of a foundational impact on how quickly an organization can move and how quickly they can innovate and how much they can put you know, the data to use to, to build very, very interesting and engaging products. And that was my key takeaway. And, and, a, and a lot of that was kind of like what really prompted us to start Rockset, to do the same thing in the cloud now for all anybody building applications in the cloud. There's something about what you just said, this idea of having a team mentality where you really wanted to unlock the creativity of the product engineering side of the house by removing these frictions around data infrastructure. And the vision for that being unlocked for other companies is kind of inspiring, and I think that's that's what we're, we're going to get into with Rockset. I've done a number of shows recently where we've talked to companies like DoorDash and Uber and Airbnb about the data infrastructure at these companies, and it's so far from a solved problem. You have you have you have search problems. You have Spark query problems. You have batch processing problems. You have st- real time streaming issues. You have all of these issues around what you could bucket as data infrastructure or data platform, and nobody really has a handle on what are the best patterns to solving this. So explain what you're doing at Rockset. How are you approaching this problem of data infrastructure? I think how are we approaching this at a high level is, I think there are too many specialized systems that all were born in the pre-cloud era that I think cloud economics are fundamentally kind of obsoleting them and requires a fresh start or a fresh perspective. So at a high level, yes, a lot of people are struggling with a lot of data and there are lots of different kinds of problems. And I don't believe that there's going to be like one you know, database to rule them all or anything like that. Far from it. I think there's always going to be you know, different application requirements for different kinds of data sets. And you'll always have a multitude of data management systems to, to build a very complex application and logistics like Uber or a DoorDash or a Facebook. Absolutely. But I think the complexity is also too much in the uh, lots and lots of specialized systems running on dedicated Linux servers, because I think everybody is still trying to solve the problems using software that was built to run on data centers on on dedicated Linux hardware, right? I think when we look at it and how the cloud is changing it is a lot more about how the cloud economics is fundamentally different. And so what we want to do is we want to see what is a better abstraction in the cloud and how do we... You know, how do we make things simpler 
while keeping the power of the system just as high. So what are the right abstractions in the cloud and how do we simplify the story rather than asking people to duct tape together multiple disparate data management systems to solve any problem, build any application, or do any automation uh, that is data-driven? How do we eliminate a lot of the complexity and how do we simplify this whole story? That is what drives us to do what we are doing at Rockset. The cost structures of the cloud have changed the economics of what you can do with a managed data platform. Explain why that is. So very simple thing, actually. You know, it's like, it's kind of a very dumb moment, which is like, whether you rent one server for 100 hours or 100 servers for one hour, it costs you exactly the same in the cloud. This was never true in on-prem. Because you, it's not even an option to buy 100 servers and use it for an hour and return it to your server pro, you know, hardware provider. That's not a thing, right? So you have to capacity plan that. You, have to like, you really have a limited kind of computational quota to do anything. And then all the software optimizations make sense where you, know, you have these three machines, squeeze every last drop out of it, and because that's all you're going to get for the next, I don't know, three years. And the more efficient you are, the more I can extract out of this particular investment that I've already made. And almost all of the software that was written in the pre-cloud era were built with that mindset. But in the cloud, what we're basically saying is, if you can parallelize something, you should always parallelize something. As long as your schedulers and your infrastructure can very quickly grow and shrink, and, and shrinking is just as important because you can retire all the CPU and all the compute and all the storage when you're not using them, then you save a lot of money. So, you know, if you could paralyze it and you could, without increasing the cost, if your software is pretty good at doing that, then you should not only ask for the same kind of efficiency and the same kind of, you know, cost dynamics, but you should also expect things to be much, much faster in the cloud than what you're used to because there's no reason to just do the slow route just because you know you happen to have installed your software in the cloud on only three machines. If your software can't quickly grow and shrink based on your demand and based on your desired SLAs, then that means you know, it's time to change your software in the cloud and not you know, be stuck with slow-performing systems in the cloud. So that's kind of like the, the fundamental realization that we had, which is why I think we, do, we have done a lot of software engineering based on these kind of cloud principles that we have observed and, and our, our software architecture is built ground up in the cloud to take advantage of the fluidity of the hardware that is available. So to some degree, you can use these this abundance of resources to speed things up, to have a, a wider degree of, of how you're indexing things. So for example, if you ingest a bunch of data in Rockset, as I understand, you're keeping a bunch of different indexes over that data. So, you know, anybody who's worked with databases, if you want to speed up a database, you're oftentimes just adding an index that is a faster way of running a certain type of query. And if you can maintain more of those indexes, then you can have more performant responses to more types of queries. Is that an accurate abbreviation of, of what you're doing to some degree at Rockset? Correct. That's very, very good abbreviation of what we're doing. At the end of the day, you know, you know, we are a cloud indexing company. You know, show, you, all we need is, there are other ways that we are also very interesting, which is like, we don't, you don't need to describe the shape of the data or the shape of the queries. 
and we automatically index the way schematize your data and index index in more than one way so that a wide spectrum of your queries are fast so that's exactly correct what you said the cool thing is why are we able to do this now you know why wouldn't uh, multiple indexing strategies work in uh, data centers and i think it comes down to again being able to leverage you know the storage hierarchy that is available in the cloud readily if you were to go and build a software that requires multiple combination of storage systems one for fast you know hot data and one for cold data and somebody needs to configure you know now you're dealing with multiple vendors and multiple you know hierarchical storage systems that all might not have the same kind of performance from one st- one installation to another and so it's kind of very hard to build a working hierarch you know system on hierarchical storage on prem it's not that it's not possible it's very very difficult to get it working in one setup in one data center but building a software product that would just work with a multitude of them and still give you a really good performance is very very hard that is why i think it hasn't really been done before but when you look at it in the cloud you know you have all the you know different hierarchies and there's a very nice co- sort of cost to performance that is very well documented very well understood on what is the read latency for your local you know ram locally attached storage block storage remote block storage in ssds remote block storage in disks and all the way to things like s3 amazon s3 and other blob stores and glacier and what have you the hierarchy is not only deep but also very well understood and very well you know very reliable that's something that you can actually take a hard dependency on as building your system software and if your software can leverage it now you can actually make let's say two copies of your data and keep the two copies in different indexing organizations so that you can actually now automatically speed up a wide spectrum of queries without asking too many you know configuration and setup questions from the user and again i think it's really the cloud that the readily available cheap and hierarchical storage services that are available in the cloud that really enables this kind of a technique and without that i think it would be very hard to do something like this we had a show a while ago with somebody from MongoDB where we were discussing database query performance and how to how to speed things up or the trade-offs you can make and one of the things that the guest was exploring was the fact that when you keep more indexes over a certain piece of data or over sets of data the more indexes you keep the longer it can take to have consistent updates when you ingest a new piece of data. Because when you ingest a new piece of data, then you have to go and update all of the indexes that are over that piece of data. So if you keep too many indexes and you have high consistency requirements over your queries, then you can get into this issue where whenever you're ingesting a piece of data, you're locking the database while you're spending time updating those indexes. Is that another trade-off that you face when you're keeping this wide variety of indexes over the data? Absolutely. But also, I think, what kind of indexes? So what you said is absolutely correct. In a traditional, what is generally considered the MongoDB-like sharded databases are called term partition databases. The term partition databases, yes, I think the indexes are built in a certain way where the more and more you have them yes your cost of a write operation goes higher and higher and that is just like basic you know math there's nothing spectacular about it the way when we say we build different kinds of indexes we don't actually build hundreds and hundreds of types of indexes we actually largely build two maybe sometimes three indexes but what type of indexes really matter what we do is we build an inverted index which is like a search index on all this data and what that does is 
whenever you have a query coming in that has arbitrary filters on your incoming data, you know, where you're looking for, you know, show me everything where this property is this value and that property is true and this other property is within this, you know, value range and what have you. Search engines are extremely good at running arbitrary filters and very quickly getting, you know, finding the needles in the haystack. And so we build that index to be able to very quickly grow from large volumes of data to the small portion that you, your query is actually targeting. And we're very, very good at that, you know, faster because it, uh, it does distributed processing across you know, many different cores and many different machines. And that is one type of index we do. The second type of index is for analytical queries when you want to do large scans over huge volumes of data. And for that, the state of the art are columnar indexes, right? And columnar databases and data warehouses use that extensively. And that is the second type of organization that we also keep behind the scenes. So we actually don't make, you know, many copies of the data. Every index is in some way is a copy of your original data. That's why it's able to serve the queries because the data also lives in the index. We largely make two copies of the data, but our optimizer, our, our SQL kind of query processing layer knows which one to use for what parts of the query. So if you run a query that says, you know, find, you know, everybody who ever, you know, worked at this company, now go and, you know, retrieve all of those people's names or whatever, and then look at all the places that, uh, where they live, then now f go find other people that, you know, live from the location or like something like that. The first query is the one that needs to now do a very quick filter, the first part of the query, I mean, and that where, you know, then we use a kind of a search or an inverted index for that. And then for the subsequent processing, we need to do a lot of other, you know, distributed, you know, SQL processing and aggregation. And there we have built a custom distributed query processing engine in C++ that can elastically grow and shrink the compute, you know, resources that are allocated for that particular query just so that we can continue to keep it fast. And then if your query involves a large scan over large amounts of data, then the query optimizer that we have built will automatically pick the columnar organization uh, of the data where you can actually do large scans over just the you know, portions of the data that you want to do a lot more efficiently than what an inverted index or a search index would be able to do. Mm. So if I understand correctly, depending on what query is issued to the Rockset database or data storage system, whatever you want to call it, depending on what query is issued, that query may use a different index. Correct. Okay. Now, I think I read in some of the documentation that you are not trying to build what is called an OLTP database. This is not a transactional database for storing a user account, for example. This is more for aggregations or search indexes or do, doing search querying, doing kind of like ingestion of clickstream data and exploratory analysis, things like that where you don't need strongly consistent up to the microsecond data. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. We're not a transaction processing a data backend. You know, I think a single node, well-optimized MySQL server or Postgres server can take someone's transaction processing system a really, really long way. They are very, very good transaction processing systems. If you really look at, you know, there's a data explosion. Everybody talks about data as a new oil and what have you. If you really look at, look at where is this coming from, they're not coming from because people are buying more. You know, they're not coming. Those kind of explosion is not for, based on, in my opinion, kind of transactional processing exploding through the roof, right? When, even when a business grows, the data, you know, you take, you take any company that, that is growing, 
their data needs grow you know exponentially not because they're doing exponentially more transactions or orders it's because they're collecting a lot more information on a lot of that information that is you know that that dominates i think your data kind of workflows and data streams and all the data that you accumulate are all what we call kind of even data right like what exposes machine generated data data that are automatically kind of created when somebody is using a product just so that you can understand what aspects of the product are working and what aspects of the product are not and things like that and so when you look at the explosion of the data the problems that dominate you know the the complexity of the data architecture and all the things that you want to do with it all come from these kinds of data sets where one application is generating it and another application is trying to consume it right and flows from in a real time stream from the from the application that generates it to the applica- to the various sets of other applications and microservices that you might want to build that consumes those data sets and those data streams and that is where we think things are way too complex because people continue to think about this kind of like bimodal type of data management systems where you're either a transaction processing system or you're a warehouse right so there is we really think the the, the data management kind of backends is missing a third leg you know there is an increasing number of operational applications that you want to build that needs to work with real time data doesn't have to be transactionally consistent but the data latency has to be in milliseconds and can't be in hours or days and you still have large volumes of that that cannot fit in a single machine and now you want to build a fast interactive application on that data set and how do you do that and that's where i think a lot of the the complexity lies today and that is really what we're trying to eliminate with rockset mhm so let's take a typical use case in advertising so let's say i i'm building a social network and users are scrolling through that social network their mouse is moving around the screen there's ads that are appearing in the news feed there's stories that are appearing in the news feed as a user is moving their mouse around the page and clicking on items in the feed the social network needs to collect this click stream data and this is a ton of data and this problem is very similar to a self-driving car that's driving around collecting tons of data or a log ingestion tool over a high volume web application where it's just you have high volumes of some data that is structured that has a, a really nice well defined schema to it and some data that is less structured where it's you know you have kind of unique events or or like a log message for example a log message is kind of unstructured has unstructured elements to it but it also has a structure to it so we're kind of talking about the requirements for a data store that would capture be able to capture any of these kinds of data and be able to build indexes and be easy to to query for lots of different applications that we might want to build against that application because if you're if you're working at Facebook or any other social network that has this highly interactive mouse around clicking on items clicking on ads you want high fidelity into you want to be able to you want to have this data platform that different internal product teams can go and use can go and leverage and and do whatever build whatever kinds of applications on top of it they want so what are the requirements for this kind of data store and and what is going to happen as that data is being ingested into rockset yes i think there's exactly the type of applications where i think we can really shine where you have some data sets that are probably real time and semi structured but you really want to also be able to do 
you know, join that with other structure and other data in, sitting in other places. And so what we say about Rockset is, you know, you can go from useful data to useful applications with a single click. So with Rockset, what we do is point us, you know, get an account, point us at your data set. It could be structured or semi-structured, real-time or not, doesn't matter. We will automatically ingest it, continuously ingest it, we'll automatically schematize it, and we will instantly start powering, you know, very fast SQL queries on top of the data. So say you have a stream coming in, a click stream or what have you, and the data is semi-structured, you don't need to describe the shape of the data ahead of time to Rockset. Point your data at Rockset and we will, it will look like a fully indexed, fully optimized SQL table on the other side. And the whole read API is offered as a SQL over REST. And so if you know how to work with REST APIs and you know SQL, you already know how to, you, how to build an application on top of Rockset. And so that's basically our, you know, our abstraction, our view on how we, we are making this whole process a lot, lot simpler. And, you know, we're looking at, in terms of use cases, you know, think of the personalization layer that you are sort of referring to in these kinds of like kind of social and e-commerce kind of applications where based on the behavioral data that these products are collecting, which is like, what are you searching for? What do you like? What do you not like? What kinds of content do you interact with more than others? And those kinds of behavioral data compared with the past transactional data on like, who are your friends? What are the other products that you previously bought from this website? And you really want to bring these two together in real time to really build a highly personalized experience for your end user. And that is the kind of an application or, or an example where you really have to bring both kind of structured data about the user and about the past transactions and the semi-structured real-time streams together. And the easier we can, the simpler you can make it, the more and more data-powered your application and your automation is going to be. And that is the kind of set of applications and use cases that we excel at. Well, actually, I, th- I want to dive in a little bit deeper to this structured versus unstructured data question, because I think some people get a little confused about this. It took me a really long time to have a basic understanding of structured versus unstructured data. Sure. Can you give me an example of, of a data stream or, and, and fields that would be semi-structured or how you would, how you would describe it, structured versus unstructured? And then let's talk about how you ingest that data and how you derive schema from it. Sure. So structured data is very well understood, right? It's what would actually, you know, you know, live in a SQL table in a MySQL or a Postgres or, or one of these relational databases. Semi-structured largely refers to, you know, when we say semi-structured, you know, we refer to things like JSON, things like Parquet, where there are a couple of issues with that. Number one is people, you know, you can't ask for a list of all the fields that might appear ahead of time in, in a lot of these kind of data sets. Because, you know, it's maybe coming from third party or it's coming from your own front end application. And it's very easy for, you know, today it looks like there are like, let's say, 17 different fields and values. And tomorrow there's going to be 18 or 19. And there's really no kind of a schema registry or what have you where people don't do alter table add column before logging in a new field. Right. So semi-structured, the shape of the data is fluid. It's a lot. It will be changing on you a lot. And there could be lots and lots of different fields and values unlike a fixed set of columns in a table, right? That's one big difference between semi-structured and structured. And then the second thing is, when it's, when it's semi-structured and coming in fluidly, the values could also be complex. In a typical traditional you know, structured database, the values would either be you know, numbers or strings or, or Boolean or what have you. 
But in a semi-structured data set, the value itself could be a nested object or a nested array of things, right? You know, like if you look at, for example, the Twitter Firehose API, which is a really good example for semi-structured data, real-time data stream, every tweet is a semi-structured JSON object that comes, you know, when you subscribe to that API, and a couple of those, you know, fields are what you would expect. What is the text of the tweet? What is the time that tweet was created and what have you? But then when you talk about, okay, who's the author of the tweet? And that is a nested kind of object within the tweet that gives you, you know, it says user. And then the value is itself lots and lots of fields and values, right? It's like, this is the name of the user. This is their mm-hmm. screen name. This is their actually, you know, the, the, the place uh, where they logged in from or something like that. Like there are lots of information about the user that is a nested object. And this would have get, gotten normalized in a typical structured database where there would be a user ID and a user uh, table separate from the tweet table. But that is actually now nested within, one is nested within the other in these kind of semi-structured data sets. So that kind of gives you an idea of the differences. So the fluid shape of it, the complex structure of it, makes it semi-structured that I think traditional SQL-based systems often really struggle with dealing with these kinds of data sets. Okay, so the the Twitter firehose is a great example because, as you said, there's schema around things like the username or the time at which the tweet was made. But even just the text of the tweet itself is, well, I guess it's it's structured in the sense that it's just a 140-character message, but it's unstructured in the sense that anything could be in that message. But I guess you're you're also talking about the unstructured nature, meaning there can be nested fields. So you could have, if you're talking about like, who is this user, you know, you can have nestings of where, you know, maybe this person didn't put in a first name and last name. So there's nothing in the first name, last name, nested field, but other users might have a first name and Correct. last name. So you have these different nesting structures. Okay, so how does that impact the ingestion process? Because we're talking about Rockset as this data platform that can ingest all these different types of data streams, whether they have schema or not, and you can impose schema on them. Because in order to derive an index from or a useful index from something, you have to impose some kind of schema on that, whether it's an inverted index for a search engine or some other kind of index. So tell me what happens during the ingestion process of data for Rockset. Exactly. Very good question. So what you said is is largely true for structured databases that, you know, in order to create an index, you need to know the structure of the data that you're indexing. And that is funda- one of the fundamental things that we're challenging and questioning with our strong dynamic typing. Our type system is strongly typed, but also dynamically typed, and that we internally use for our query processing, which is why when data like the Twitter Firehose comes in, right? Like, just think about what it would take today before Rockset if you were to build an application on top of that. You know, someone comes to you and say, hey, here is a, you're a data engineer or, a, or an application engineer. I want to be able to build arbitrary, I want to ask arbitrary questions on, on top of this data. You know, I want to find out you know, all the tweets in the last two weeks, you know, that has certain term, you know, certain words in it or were, were, were tweeted by a certain set of users or, you know, that had a certain kind of like, you know, stock ticker symbols in them. I want to aggregate and find the most popular stock ticker symbols in the last 15 days across the tweets that I have and all, all sorts of these kinds of complex questions. Now, the first thing you're going to say is, well, I can't query JSON, so I need to now ETL this into a structured database so I can do these kinds of complex, you know, filters and, and aggregations. And you're going to be like, okay, so how do I do that? So now you need to go and take a random sample of the data set, and then you're going to look at like, okay, 
how do I flatten this out into a SQL table? And some of them it would be, you know, you'd be able to flatten this and you'd sort of like build a, some kind of an ETL script, either on the real time or on a static data set that of tweets that have been dumped in some source. And then what happens if these API continue to evolve and there's more information in them than what you had, let's say, a month ago. Now your application now needs to exploit that but your retail scripts don't know about them. And so now, you know, you go and redo the same thing again and again and again, right? Instead, what, how does it work with Rockset is literally you point, you know, if there's a real-time stream, let's say it's an Amazon Kinesis stream or it's coming in Apache Kafka and there's a topic that has a list of JSON, you know, tweets coming from the Twitter Firehose API, you literally have to, you know, get an account with Rockset and just give us read access to that topic or that Kinesis stream. You don't need to specify anything about what's in it we will automatically detect it's a JSON format and we will automatically schematize it and make the entire Twitter stream, you know, no matter how much, how nested it is and you have nested arrays of nested arrays of nested arrays, it doesn't matter. We enable direct SQL-based access for all of those fields to unnest them on the fly, to filter out all the, the set of data that is malformed that you don't want your, you know, to include in your data processing to do type inspection to say only show me when this field was this type because other types are invalid for this type and I don't I want to ignore them during my query processing and filter them aggregate them sort them join them with another data set you can do all sorts of you know complex analysis on that on the automatically schematized and indexed data that the Rockset does without having to describe the shape of the data and how exactly it works is we look at every one of those JSON document coming in and we don't try to match it to some pre-built schema. If you, if you have set up something that you want us to enforce, that we can do. But out of the box, we don't try to match it against some golden you know, format of what we expect. We look at every document, every record that comes in, in and by itself. And we shred it to pieces. We look at, we keep all the, we, we retain all the pieces of content, which is here are the fields, here are the values, and this field happens to have this value in this type, in this instance of the document, we are basically organizing our data in a way that will allow us to do very fast and efficient SQL processing on top of that organized data without sacrificing performance at scale. So every piece of content is, you know, you can think of it as like shredded into a small little pieces while keeping, preserving the type and the value, all of that intact without having to comply with some predefined shape which is when I think you suddenly have these errors in, in traditional systems. We don't have any of that. We'll ingest them as the records come in, you know, in real time and organize them in our backend. And at query time is when we really try to match your query with our SQL query processing time. We try to match your query with what the data actually we have seen. So say, for an example, say you have a zip code field that comes in mostly as integers and once in a while it is a string. We will store all the zip codes that came as integers as integers and all the zip code values that came as strings as strings in our backend when we are organizing them and indexing them upon ingest. But at query processing time, you can say, you can write a query that says, show me all records where zip code is greater than zero. And then we'll automatically only say match all the integers and float floating point numbers that we happen to have for that field you know, at query processing time. But then say you write another query that says, find me all zip codes that is equal to this particular string. Then at query processing time, we'll go and match all those records where that particular field happens to be of type string and the value happens to match what you, were, what you provided. 
So by preserving the type of the data and the values all in place when we are ingesting the data and indexing the data allows us to do this kind of type binding to do the dynamic typing at query time. And so at query time, you can interrogate it. You can write the query. If the data suddenly gets malformed, you just need to tweak your query a little bit and very quickly unblock yourself and keep going instead of breaking your ETL pipeline and reloading your data and go backing and rescanning your data, revalidating your data again and again every time your data kind of evolves on you. Instead, whatever you used to do at ETL time, at write time, you can now do that at query processing time, which should speed up a three-week project to be you know, done in a matter of hours or days. Now, something that I was hoping we'd be able to get to, but I just I don't think we have enough time, is a discussion of RocksDB, because the name Rockset, I think, has some association with RocksDB, that the database is a, a database storage system that was built within Facebook. And I think RocksDB is, is used as a storage engine in several other databases too, but I think we <laughs> may, have to, may have to save RocksDB for another episode. I think we should close by talking a little bit about the data engineering problems that you're seeing in your early customers and how those compare to what you saw at Facebook and what you're seeing people build with Rockset since they have you know, a, a newer solution. So yeah, what are the, what are the problems that you're seeing the data engineering problems you're seeing in your customers, and how do those compare to what you saw at Facebook? Very interesting. I think people try to largely build you know, similar kinds of applications, but I think the biggest difference between what our customers see and what happened within Facebook is that the, the overall, quote-unquote, you know, the quality of the data or the messiness of the data is very, very different. I think in the, in, with our customers, a lot of the time, they're trying to you know, connect third-party data sets with some internal data sets that they have, right? This is a problem that is even harder than the kind of data problems that I think, honestly, you know, we had at Facebook because largely the data that was created within Facebook was largely created by the Facebook application itself. And it wasn't like third-party data sets that, that Facebook was trying to make sense out of. But here, whether it is a marketing op- you know, operations application that somebody's trying to build or market intelligence, what's happening in the market, what's happening with my competitors, what products is, you know, is, is moving, what products are not moving. To answer these kinds of questions, you know, enterprises have to combine external third-party data sets and, you know, and semi-structured data with their internal data, which is, I think, a really interesting kind of challenge, but very different than what I think we saw at Facebook. So that is something you know, that has been very interesting for us, that that these kinds of market intelligence applications and you know sales operations, customer support operations in the real world, you know now needs to really is a lot more complex than even what you know I think some of the backend applications that Facebook you know was dealing with, and so those are the kinds of use cases where I think we really shine, and so those are the kind of use cases that our customers are doing, whether it is data science on semi-structured data, building personalization engines on on these semi-structured and structured data sets, all kinds of IoT sensor data use cases and as i said like you know sales automation like business operations automation kinds of use cases so all of these things were uh, i think almost all of them are are sort of in in certain ways very different and and some ways much harder than honestly what we experienced at facebook vinkit thank you for coming on software engineering daily it's been really fun talking to you about rockset thank you yeah i think we have a you know go to rockset.com there is a get started for free if you're interested in that you can get started for free there's a free tier 
And you know, all you need to do is, do is go to rockstar.com and click that green button and we'll hook you up with an account. And I can't wait to see what people are going to build you know, on top of Rockstar. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate you having us. Wow. 